welcome to the Camden Fringe Pod, a podcast all about the Camden Fringe. Keep listening for a glimpse behind the curtains and to find out how you can get involved in, you guessed it, the Camden Fringe. Hello, I'm Michelle. I'm Zena. Welcome to the Camden Fringe Pod. This is our 16th episode. Woohoo! No, that's like four months of podcasting. Woo-hoo. Last time we recorded, it was just turned May, and we had just over a hundred shows all registered with us. We've now got one hundred and forty-two, so that's forty basically in a week. You guessed that we would have two hundred and sixty something by the end of the month. So if we carry on getting forty a week for the next three weeks. You should be bang on track there. Yeah. Although my maths is not great. Your maths is, has never been your strongest point. Yeah, if people would reply to my emails. But yes, we will get there. We are getting there. So today's episode is all about writing and creating. Because we've done a lot about marketing. and It's a bit soulless, isn't it? It's got to be done if you want people to come and see your show. But. Mm-hmm. We're getting a bit more into the creative nitty gritty this week with Nick Pettigrew. Oh, as we have known him for many years. Nick P. He is a script doctor, mainly for stand-up comedians, and he's going to give his advice on getting your script together. There's loads of good advice in there. It might not all be yeah salient to your show, but definitely useful stuff. Today we have Nick P., that's what we know him as, but he is also known as Nick Pettigrew. And you are a script doctor. Is that correct? Amongst other things, yes. You're also Sunday Times bestselling author of a, a brilliant book called Antisocial. Yes. If you're going to bring that up, then that's a... Which is incredible. A, a, a shock, yeah. Uh, but very nice. And have you got another book in the pipeline? Uh, yeah, there's a couple of um, sort of ideas frustratingly since antisocial came out i actually ghost wrote another book which was another sunday times bestseller i know that sounds awful to point that out was it spare <laughs> yeah you know, I just, you know i'm bound to secrecy but yeah that, that was a really interesting experience kind of plays into the script doctoring in a sense that you're trying to sort of match somebody else's writing style and so on so that was that was really enjoyable but a bit frustrating because i think to everyone else it's like well you did that book three years ago and you've just been sat on your hands ever since like no not really so if you want to look in any biographies autobiographies you read recently check and see whether nick pettigrew gets a thank you (laughs) and then we'll know is it david williams book (laughs) (laughs) i couldn't possibly comment whether david williams gets people in to write his books for him and then he just slaps his name on the front that would that would be quite improper it would be improper of me to ask (laughs) Um, i'm quite fascinated by what you do when you help people with their fringe shows because everybody you work a lot with comedians is that right that, yeah it's been mostly sort of traditional stand-ups and there was one show which was sort of straddled between stand-up and sort of one-man show theatery type so everyone's so different do you find that you have to spend a lot of time working with the person to work out what their voice is so that you can sort of match what they would do it's a big part of it yeah i think naturally I think people gravitate towards somebody they think can get their voice so you know if it were I don't know for argument's sake somebody who's 20 years old from a different country maybe culturally quite different from me I'm probably not going to be the best person to approach do you know what I mean I'm not saying I couldn't do that but I just think 
because the Fringe show it, it is so about voice and getting that right that I think there will probably be better people out there. So I think it's partially self-selected. But equally, I mean, I've worked with people who are very different from me and whose stand-up is very different from the stuff I did sort of many decades ago when I, when I did it. But yeah, you've got to always be conscious, not about the jokes you would tell, it's about the, the jokes they would tell. For instance, one person I work with doesn't really swear. It's not prudish, it's not a kid's show, but that's just not them and I'm a bit of a potty mouth. So, you know, simple stuff like that, you, you've got to sort of pitch it to match that and... That's part of the early conversations as well, is, is the ground rules about what do you or don't you talk about, what what things are out of bounds and so on. So it's about getting them ground rules at the start. That's fascinating. And how did you get into doing that? Did you just sort of start by helping someone with a show and then you started spreading your arms to further people? Or is it always people you know? How it started out was there's somebody that I knew via my stand-up days who's taken the show to Edinburgh and just got in touch. He said <laughs> very kindly, um, but also very accurately said to me that I always thought you were a better writer than a stand-up, which is absolutely fair because I was always say I hit the giddy heights of competent as a stand-up. That was about my level. But he said, as a writer, I always thought, you know, so he, this person got me on board to go through the show and, and sort of look at what was working, what wasn't. And... Did very well the show, and and you know, look, that's that's it. Kind of like doing the ghostwriting part of doing the script doctoring is, it's fun because you don't have to then go and sell it, you don't have to flyer it, you don't have to perform it, so you don't have any of that pressure. But equally, when it does well, you've got to kind of take a back seat and say, well, look, that's them, that's not me. I just kind of got it to where it needed to be. But the first one I did did well, you know, four stars in the Scotsman, you know, the kind of stuff that you then go, well, look, I helped somebody with the show these are the kind of reviews it got and then off the back of that I had other people approach me some of whom I knew from stand-up days some I knew socially some I'd, I'd never really spoken to when you're writing um do you say things out loud as you're writing to make sure it lands yeah um it, that helps but there's there's no substitute for just saying it in front of an audience and seeing what the reaction is the stuff that you think is really clever and it will really work and it just it's the right bit of the show and everything and it just won't work. And you've got to be quite tough with stuff like that. Because obviously, and so, well, look, you know, I think it's funny. It's joke shape, but audiences just, just don't like it. And I think also as well with that can sometimes be where it is. Because if you think for a one hour show, unless you are very straightforward, joke, 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 kind of an act, over an hour, people are going to be at different points emotionally during the show. So a joke might not land in the first 10 minutes, but it might in the last 10 minutes, for instance. So would you go and watch previews and then keep working on something for a long period of time until you know that it's fine-tuned and ready to go? You know, I, I will always sort of adapt it to what people want or, or need. Um, like I've worked on shows where the show's pretty much there and it is just tweaking it and, and suggesting stuff and um, fine-tuning. Other times it's been when it's still quite raw in terms of what the show's going to be, so that's a lot more hands-on. But seeing it definitely perform if possible, if, it, if it's if enough of it is ready, where you can watch it in situ and, and watch it over the course of the hour, um, definitely because then you know you get a sense of the rhythms of it, and if it's feeling like it's flagging in certain bits or they are rushing past other bits. So yeah, it, it's a bit of everything really. So a, a lot of our companies are people that haven't 
done shows before they're new to it they sometimes don't know how to time how long something is that they've written obviously you can't tell us how to write a show in the next 20 minutes but what advice can you impart to someone who's never sort of put a script together before I would say, I mean, roughly speaking, if, if it's a screenplay, so television, film, something, one page is one minute. But on a script, the, the dialogue is a lot more spaced out. So, I mean, it, it, there's no hard and fast on it, but I, I would say there's no substitute, even if you just read it out loud in your living room or your bedroom or whatever. And that sounds silly. Pause at the bits you think people might laugh at. Because if you just read it as a monologue, then that's clearly that's it's going to take longer than that. So I think that I think deciding what kind of show you want it to be. So if it's a one long story, for instance, then it's about where do you start the story? You know, there's that whole thing about start the story as late as possible. So you're not building up to some great preamble. So if it's a story, then it's 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 looking at that and the arc of it and, and where you want people to be and. You know, it's the old cliche, you know, the dead dad shows where you have the sad bit 40 minutes in and all that palaver, which it doesn't need to have. But it, it is about looking at that. And people generally don't want to laugh for an hour solidly unless you're exceptionally good. And if it's your first show, it's you'll be very lucky if you just happen to be brilliant. So, yes, you want to look at it and go, right, where's the next laugh? Where's the next laugh? But also if all you've got is joke, joke, joke. I would say, generally speaking, about 40 minutes in, people get tired. So it, you've got to have something else, I think. So, yeah, it's, it's looking at that. It's looking at what kind of show you want to do. Do you want to tell a story? Is it a show about you as a person? Is it about a particular events? And, and then tailoring it towards it. I mean, I've worked on shows, and to be honest with you, a lot of first-time Edinburgh shows that stand-ups take off is pretty much what are my best jokes that I've written. And then it's about Frankensteining it into some kind of story. I mean, certainly the first hour I took up was that. Um, it was just bits I'd done on stage that worked. And then I was like, right, what structure can I impose over the top of it? So, I mean, that can work. Do you know what I mean? It's, that's equally valid. Yeah. So I know one of the things we've found, and we've seen many shows over the years, haven't we? We have. One of the mistakes I think some companies make is they have one idea and then they they know that a fringe show should be about 55 minutes long, so the, the idea is then stretched <laughs> like a really long way. Yeah, I, th I think to balance, on the one hand, you can get too bogged down in this is the idea and, and, and only things that serve the idea, and, and you have to go outside of that and think laterally. So if it's about pigeons, if it's just an hour of facts about pigeons, you know that's not going to sort of last long, so you think about, well, where do pigeons, well, they nest, you know, they eat rubbish out of gutters. So, you know, they forage in bins. So do you bring bin men in? And, you know, it's it, stuff like that. But I think also as well, if you've got a really funny bit, a really great bit, but it doesn't serve the show, drop it. And it's really hard to do that because if you've got five minutes, you know, always gets laughs. It's kind of like a, um, like a life ring that you cling on to and just go, well, we've got to have that bit because I know that bit works. But, just kill your babies. Yeah, basically. Yeah, I mean, if, if you've if you've got a one-hour show about pigeons and you've got a killer five minutes about Henry the Fourth, unless you can really sort of make an excuse to justify it being there, you, you've got to drop it. So if you if you've written a a two-hander play for the Fringe and you don't have any previews booked, would you suggest performing it in your kitchen for your mum? Yeah, don't know how the words feel in your mouth until you've performed it, and you know, and I've, I've worked with people who have done a preview for their mates. They've got, you know, half a dozen mates around in their living room. 
these crisps and beers in the fridge. Then they turn it into a social thing. They go, right, okay, you know, we'll come round, we'll have a barbecue, blah, blah, blah. And then there'll be an hour where I'm going to do the show. And, you know, that has value. I mean, they're your friends or your family, they're going to be on your side. So you've got to take that into account. But it's it's really odd that even in those circumstances when you've loaded the dice, if you've got half a dozen of your mates and you've poured a few beers into them and, and you go, right, I'm going to do my show now, people find it really hard to fake reactions for an hour. The first few minutes, they'll be like, hey, oh, it's my mate. But if something's not working, you, you'll know. You'll know. And I think equally, if something really works, you, you will know when the fake laugh stops and when the real sort of laugh starts or the whatever reaction it is that you're at. So, yeah, there is completely value in, in doing that because, as I say, you will get a reaction and you will kind of know to filter and put it into context, but also you won't know what it's like to perform it unless you've performed it. It'll feel awkward. Especially if it's um, my, my one-woman naked clown show. <laughs> so basic things like if you're doing a, a one-hour show, you mentioned this to me when we were chatting about doing this podcast. You said that there was an optimum word count for a show. Can you tell me more about that? It illustrates how kind of impossible question that is because I went, well, it's 12,741 words. And if if it's one word more, then it's going to be a rubbish show. And it, you know, there's so much involved. It's about pacing. You know, if if you're a laid back West Country storyteller, or if you're Ryan Gagnon, your word counts are going to be completely different. And I think you've got to decide: do you talk around the story, or does it do the words have to be on the page? Some people feel more comfortable having almost like prompts. You know, sort of bullet points. I need to hit this, 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 and this. The last show I worked on, because it was more towards like a one-man play kind of thing, it was sort of halfway between that and stand-up, but because it was more theatrical, the words had to be there in the order they're going to be performed pretty much. So there's there little room for improv. So in terms of workouts, it's really hard to say. And more important than workout, as I said earlier, is if you've got a rough idea what the show's going to be and where the jokes are and what the lines are, once you've got that, just say it at the pace you would say it, and then that will guide you to where it's sagging or it's too long or it's too short. And I would say you may sort of have experienced this as well. As a rule of thumb, 95% of shows are too long with the first draft. They're always, you know, I think there's that panic of, I haven't got enough stuff, I haven't got enough stuff. But almost all first drafts of shows are too long, and then you're looking at what can lose. We've worked with Robin Inns a few times, and his first goes at his shows are always couple of hours <laughs> and then it's always a case of oh can I keep going or do I have to get out of the theatre and it's like yeah you need to get out of the theatre now <laughs> and he'll find he's still on the first page of his what he was going to talk about you know and that's the gift that, that Robin Ince has because he is endlessly interesting and interested that he's got a hundred avenues he can go down because he he is sort of so well read and, and, and interested in things that you can talk for an hour and then look and go as you say I haven't even got past page one of ten and in a way look if you've got that gift and, and very few people do then people will watch that show because they're watching you and they're investing in you but if it's your first show people don't know who you are you'll struggle to to rely on that what you said before about having talking points rather than a, a set script reminded me of a show that we saw a couple of years ago where somebody he was doing a, a one-man show and it was all about his life, but he sort of made the decision to really stick to this script that he'd written, but he wasn't good at remembering lines, <laughs> which lots of people aren't. I I could never remember 
lines. That's why I sort of never, ever went into performance because I just can't remember anything. So he tried to do the show by remembering his script and that was disastrous for him. But actually when he went back and just thought about what are the main talking points and because it was something that had happened to him anyway, you can comfortably talk about something because it's coming from your own head, isn't it? I think that's a big difference, yeah. If it's an entire invention, that becomes more difficult. But as you say, if it's stuff that's happened to you, then it, if you can structure it, obviously in the right way and it's got a link and everything but essentially then if you're telling you know a dozen anecdotes down the pub if if you've told these stories to your mates by definition sort of human nature you work out the funny way of telling a story so you know if something's happened in your life 10 years ago and every time you meet new people like oh yeah there was that time that boom, 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 boom. you don't have to perform before you already know how to make that story the fun version of the story, the quick version of it and so on. So it's about just replicating that skill. But I think the talking point has its has its benefits. But I think if you're relying on like wordplay or like clever sentence structure to get the joke across, then there are going to be times where you're just like, I can't wing that because if that word doesn't land in the first sentence, then sentence three of the joke is not going to make any sense because I didn't construct it in that way if that makes sense if it's billy Connolly sort of storytelling you stuff that's maybe less important but then if it's if you're doing like stephen wright jokes they are absolutely precision tools down to the very last syllable and you can't sort of piss about with them basically thinking about writing in general whether that be um, a script or a book if you get blocked have you got any tips of what you do to kind of unblock yourself are you like i'm gonna go out for a some physical exercise or I'm going to just write some words down on some bits of paper and throw them in the air and see what happens. Have you got any sort of techniques that you use? This is going to sound flippant and, and, and it's not meant to. It's write. If you're struggling to write, write. And, and it's about ripping the bandage off. And I, two years ago, was diagnosed with ADHD and a big part of that is procrastination. And I wasn't diagnosed when I wrote my first book and I would put it off, put it off have panic attacks, lurching in the stomach, and then I would sit down and write 6,000 words in one go. And I, I can't recommend that to anybody. That doesn't no, sound fun. Because it's putting pressure on yourself. But what I did learn through that is is just that the, the fear of not writing is always worse than writing something even when you're not feeling inspired or the ideas aren't coming. And it's remembering as well that the first draft of anything is you telling yourself the story and nobody will ever see it. So it can be as awful as you like. And, and you know, and I write the television script at the minute with a writing partner and we have like this shorthand of, if, if we're doing a scene or something like that, like we're, we're happy just writing like this, but a version that isn't shit. And that's fine. And you, you listen to people like people who wrote The Simpsons, which, you know, if you're talking about joke density and plotting and, 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 you know, high arts. They said we would have scenes where we say, right, in this scene, Homer uh, makes Marge annoyed about something. And we'll come back to it. It, it kind of doesn't matter what it is. You know, if we can't think of something now, tomorrow or two days, we'll come up with a belter to do that. So if you've got a section where, you know, if, if it's your pigeon show, right, I, want to, I need to talk about Pigeon Street, the television, the kids show, for five minutes. I haven't got a clue what I'm going to write. Okay. Pigeon Street section goes here. Come back to it. Do you know what I mean? Because the back of your brain will be working on it subconsciously. 
but I, I just think, yeah, writing. If, if just just sit down and write anything, even if it's absolute nonsense, even if it's not the thing that you want to write, it's completely irrelevant. And then it it doesn't matter. Stephen King wrote a, a really good book about writing, mm-hmm. and he said, and I think lots of other writer tip type people say the same thing: is just you just have to turn up and sit down and start doing it rather than waiting for the, like the magic light bulb moment that might come whilst you're actually in the midst of it. it yeah in in the mind for it. I, I have a particular dislike for the you know the writing tips community you see on twitter and stuff like that and this idea that you know well if i had a cabin by a lake up in the mountains and, and then the writing would flow no it, it won't if you can have the perfect sort of circumstances for writing, if it's not coming, it's not coming. And all that'll do is then make you more frustrated that if I can't write in this situation, then I'm screwed, basically. So it's it's about the, and I'll probably misquote this and, and my uh, English degree will have to go in the bin, but I think it was T.S. Eliot and he talked about um, the pram in the hallway. It's that there are no ideal circumstances for writing. The kids will be crying or you've got stuff that you need to be getting on with so that you can't wait for per perfect circumstances because they will never exist so if that's what you need to write you'll never write you mentioned before about how when you're writing you might say oh i'll come back and do this bit later but this is what it's going to be Mm. how would you go about just structuring something from like from the off like when you've got the blank page and you think right i'm going to do this show i've got the story in my head would you kind of break it down into different sections that you need to write, different scenes? I think that could be useful, yeah. There's there's the old uh, post-it notes on a, on a whiteboard sort of trick. Sort of written shows and scripts doing that because what it helps to do is say, well, if I've got, say, 55 minutes and each post-it note constitutes five minutes, then fine, I've got 11 post-it notes and I can move them around. And, and it helps with if something needs to go earlier or later, you can literally just peel it off and stick it somewhere else. I think with structure and, and certainly with drama and plays more than stand-up is starting and ending with like um, a moment of energy. And, and that doesn't need to be everyone's on unicycles and juggling stuff like that energy. Start with like setting your stall out early on. Like this is the tone. This is what it's going to be like. This is the thing it's lovely to think that you can sort of gently ease the audience into it after 10-15 minutes but you've got an hour to really grab them and equally at the end leave people with something to walk out of you know if you're going for the gritty realism thing and, and there's a temptation to go right really devastate them and then lights out and they will not recommend that show to anyone and, and it might be dramatically fine and it might be realistic and it might be really impact but you've got to leave them with something uh, script writing party we were talking about this the other day about this and about structure and you've got to leave the audience with something and, and I was trying to think of versions of scripts that don't do that I said well with Nail and I that's got an incredibly downbeat ending there's there's no hope and then you go no because he does the soliloquy the Hamlet soliloquy and you see this guy is an amazing actor he's brilliant but he'll never have a career because he can never get out of his own way you've left people with something like a, an energy and up and and you need to do that you need to end it with with something like that and it doesn't need to be a big laugh or a hopeful moment or a song but it can be that soliloquy in the rain which is a really downbeat ending but if they just ended it with him oh look i'll see you later and him wandering off then it's a different it's a completely different script 
Like, um, uh, have you ever seen any of Ben Moore's shows? Oh, gosh, I can't think off the top of my head. They always leave me in tears, but feeling a bit like my life's changed as well. Yes, completely, yeah. And that's that's what I say. It's not about leaving people with, like, an upbeat, hey, it might turn out all right thing. That's not what it's about. It's about, as you say, leaving people with something like they feel energised, that they've learned something or changed them in some way, made them think about something differently. So you, you've got to have that at the end and then just in terms of the middle of the structure it, that's the gnarly stuff it's why is why is this bit here what's it doing and and that kind of goes back to the idea that if you've got a joke or a routine that's great but it doesn't fit the show get rid of it if it is a play for argument's sake as opposed to stand up each scene needs to be doing something and not plotty it's not plotty plot plot gets us to the next bit but it's about okay now we know this about this person or now this sets the tone of, of, of what the show is about. But if it's not doing any of that, if it's just clever dialogue or a chance for one of the actors to show off, then it's not doing anything. But it needs to move the story forward. Yeah, and, and I think people get, with that, it needs to move the story forward. People, I think, get too bogged down in story plot. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, so it needs to move the story forward, but not in as much as someone's been kidnapped or there's a gun on above the mantelpiece or whatever. As I say, revealing that, um, for argument's sake, somebody was adopted. If the scene does that, and then what that then does is, ah, so that's why they're like, that's how why they reacted like that 10 minutes ago, and that's going to inform what they're going to do in 10 minutes' time. That's moving the story forward. Do you know what I mean? So it's it's that is still doing something, even though if it's just very dialogue-y and, and it doesn't feel that way, it, it's serving a purpose. And do you have any um, words of wisdom about show titles? You've got kind of two options. It's either a title that's so weird that people will remember it, um, or it sounds so obvious, but so many people don't do it. Title that tells you what the show is going to be like, because there's thousands of shows, and and you know if your title says it's you know everything you ever wanted to know about pigeons, but we're afraid to ask, you go like I really like pigeons, you know, and it sounds so basic, but as I say, you know you. You can do the, the, the punny sort of two, three word title and, you know, and the photo of the, of the show is just you scratching your head quizzically. Join the list. There's going to be 300 like that. It's the Richard Heron thing that always struck me. He said, I only need to appeal to 150 people in every town in the country and then I can tour for the rest of my life. I don't need to appeal to hundreds of thousands of people. There's nothing wrong with it being that niche. So, yeah, if you can be universal and everyone would love it, fantastic. But if you can convince 30 people every day that your particular show and what you're going to talk about is of interest to them, fine. And Nick, would you like to plug your um, services or your book or anything? Yes, I'm Nick underscore Pettigrew uh, on Twitter. So you can always sort of find me there. You do very good Twitter. I, I, I'd like to think I'm, I'm very good at a completely useless skill uh, that I can't monetize. But no, um, so yes, yeah, so I, I do ghostwriting, uh, sort of script doctoring. If it's just a couple of hours having a tweak or suggesting a few jokes or a big sort of rewrite or whatever, um, no job too small, no fee too small. I forgot that wrong, didn't I? No fee too long. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you about antisocial behaviour in the theatre. Um, I think it's an indication of the shift in the societal norms and, and sort of uh, feeling, um, well, I've paid my money, therefore I can behave how I want. And I think people aren't used to communal experiences like theatre and just go if I was watching this at home I'd be singing my lungs out and you're not sat at home you're sat 
around people. And I think because society is more atomized and people are used to experiencing stuff in, in, in their own home, that that communal things are lost a little bit. Um, and I think people are behaving that way because they think, well, look, you know, if I piss myself at home and get drunk, then that's my own problem. Oh, God. So a woman did a, a, did actually do a poo in the corridor, didn't she, at the um, opera house? Really? Yeah. We're going to get cut off now, so... On that note... Well, on that bombshell. <laughs> I will leave on the famous Harry Hill advice for stand-up, but it applies for the plays. And, and, and it's going really badly, get off the stage. It's going really well, get off the stage. Well, that was lovely. Yeah, lovely to see him. I hope that was useful. Hopefully, if you've got a bit stuck on your script, you've got some ideas to push it forward. you just got to write. Yeah, you just have to get on with it. Don't leave it to the last minute. Try not to. So we're going to have a little break from the podcast for a few weeks while we're getting to a busy time. And then we're going to come back with some more interviews, some more insights behind the scenes, but also hopefully more interviews with Camden Fringe participants for this year. We're trying to get a nice selection of people who are taking part with all sorts of different weird and wonderful shows. Yep. And also, if there's something that we haven't covered and you want us to cover in a future podcast, do let us know and we will see what we can do. We'll try our best. Thank you for listening. Do follow us on social media. We are at Camden Fringe on Twitter, TikTok. We've not posted anything on TikTok for ages. Facebook. But on Instagram, we are The Camden Fringe. Goodbye. Goodbye.